So Genesis chapter 2, starting at verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat it of it, you will surely die. And then down uh, on the same page to chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat from the, the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And our final reading is John chapter 3 starting at at verse uh, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. This is God's word. Thank you, John. Do keep that final reading open, if you will, please. John chapter 3, page 1066. Let's pray, and then I'm going to do my best to open it up to us. Father, we thank you for what the Bible teaches and the way the Bible teaches it. Help us to hear, help us to bow before your grace and majesty, and help us to respond with real faith. In Jesus' name, amen. If I wanted to prove to you that at the heart of the universe there is not randomness, not cold majesty, not tyranny or cruelty, but that at the heart of the universe there is a wonderful love. It is not obvious that the best place for me to take you would be a public execution. It's not obvious that the best thing for me to do would be to take you to the time in human history when public executions were perhaps more cruel than they have ever been before or since. 
to a Roman crucifixion. And not just to any old public execution, but to a public execution which was a miscarriage of justice. It's not obvious that that is the demonstration and the proof that at the heart of the universe there is love. We're going to sing in our final song when I finish. One of the lines of our final song says, Behold the man upon a cross. Come and look at a man being crucified by the Romans in nakedness and shame and learn from that that God is love. It's a very strange thing, isn't it, that the cross is the central symbol of Christianity. There are other symbols, of course. Sometimes people will use a dove to symbolize the Holy Spirit or a crib for the Christmas baby. Or in some old basilicas, you might have Christus Imperator, Christ seated on the throne with an orb and a scepter as the ruler of the world. But the universal symbol of Christianity, the central symbol of Christianity, is a cross. It is a reminder that our founder was executed in shame with the most dreadful form of execution perhaps ever invented. That's what you put on a church building, a cross, what some people wear around their neck, a cross. Some cathedrals are built in the shape of a cross. The best-known Christian aid agency is the Red Cross. No other religion does this, choosing as its symbol the shameful reminder of the death of its founder. And I've been given this morning a short Bible passage which contains, as Simon said, John 3.16, probably the most famous Bible verse in human history. It's a wonderful little passage. I would love to be able to do something clever with it and embellish it and make you think how clever I am, but I can't. So I'm simply going to try and open up what the Bible says in these marvelous verses And I hope and pray that we'll attend to them. What has happened just before this? If you were with us last week, you may remember this. Earlier in in chapter 3 of John's Gospel is that Jesus has had a one-on-one meeting with a Jewish Pharisee, religious, knowledgeable, respectable man called Nicodemus. And he's spoken to Nicodemus about the need to be born from above, a new birth, a completely fresh start deep inside. And at the end of the conversation, as I think it is, in verses 14 and 15, if you just glance back at those, he does a strange thing. And he says, just as Moses, looking back to the Old Testament when the people of Israel were in the wilderness, Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, the Israelites being bitten by poisonous snakes, and God lifted up, he made a model, a bronze model of a snake, the kind that was biting them, and he put this bronze model of the snake, he lifted it up on a wooden pole, and Jesus says, in the same way, so the Son of Man, so I must be lifted up, and he's speaking of crucifixion, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. And John, and I take it verses 16 to 21, are John, the gospel writer, giving us his explanatory comment on this. 
Jesus has made this cryptic remark, really, just as that Old Testament story about the snake being lifted up, the bronze snake lifted up on a pole. In the same way, I'm going to be lifted up, lifted up on a Roman cross, so that everyone who believes in me can have eternal life, the life of the age to come. And you read that and you you want to say, why? How does this work? What is this strange imagery? What does it mean? And why does believing in you give me the life of the age to come? And John says, in effect, in verses 16 to 21, let me tell you. Let me open this up for you. So verse 16, 4, this is what it means. God so loved the world that he gave, and the gave looks back to the lifting up on the cross, the giving of Jesus to die, his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. It's the first use of love language in John's gospel. John is the great apostle of love. He uses love language more than anyone else in the New Testament. And this is the first use. God so loved the world. And he describes the one lifted up as the one and only son. It's a particular expression. He's used it in his prologue, right at the beginning of chapter 1 of his gospel. He's said the one and only Son is the, the Word of God who became flesh, and we've seen his glory, we've seen his outward shining, this one and only Son from the Father. And at the end of his prologue in chapter 1, verse 18, he says, nobody's seen God but the one and only Son, who has lived from all, for all eternity in intimacy with the Father. He has made the Father known, the one and only Son. And it's this unique Son who has been lifted up to die. And this is God's love. And then in verse 17, he expands on verse 16 by contrast with its opposite. He He says, God didn't send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And when when you read verse 17, you want to say, John, why did you need to say that? He didn't send his Son into the world to condemn the world. And I take it the answer is this. We liberal moderns naturally assume that if God has sent his Son into the world, it must have been because God is nice And God wants to do something nice for us. And we need a reality check. John says, no, I need to tell you that when God sent his one and only son into the world, it wasn't to condemn the world. And I need to tell you that. Because if you had a proper understanding of the world and human beings, when you heard that God had sent his son into the world, your immediate reaction would be to say, it is judgment time. The world in John's gospel doesn't mean the cosmos or the universe. The world in John's gospel means human beings. And it means human beings who have, well, to use a contemporary illustration, raised the black flag. That Islamist movement in Iraq and Syria, when they take over a town or a city, they raise the black flag as a way of saying the rebels are in charge. From now on, we're going to run things our way. And when John speaks of the world, he speaks of human beings who by nature raise the black flag. 
That's what we do. However respectable you and I may be, we raise the black flag. We say, no, 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 we're not going to bow down to the the God who made us. We're going to make our own decisions. We're going to act as though we knew no best. We're going to decide what's right and what's wrong. We're going to raise the black flag. And all the misery in the world stems out of that raising of the black flag by human beings. And so when we hear that God has sent his son into the world, the right reaction to that is to shiver and to say, if the God who made the world, who made a good world, and who has seen human beings messing up that good world and raising the black flag, if he sends his son, whatever that means, into the world, we should shiver and we should say it's judgment time. And John says, no, wonderfully it's not. Verse 17, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. It was created through him and it will be saved through him. And verse 16 and verse 17 speak to us of the love of God, but they speak to us of a love that is a holy love. Do you notice in verse 16, people often love John 3.16 and with good reason, but you notice those words in the middle of John 3.16, that whoever believes in him shall not perish. And that's the Genesis story, isn't it, that we had read from Genesis 2 and 3. God said, I give you a wide, wonderful world. You can enjoy the world I've given you, but I'm going to give you a boundary. You can eat from any of the trees in the garden, but not this one. And when you cross that boundary, you will perish. You won't perish immediately, but you will become mortal. You'll grow old, you'll decay, and suddenly or gradually you will die. And when you die, you'll be separated from the God who made you. You will perish. And John 3.16 and the cross of Jesus only reveals the love of God if we have a sober understanding of ourselves and our guilt. If we think that we are intrinsically good, then the cross of Christ and indeed the whole of Christianity is an ugly and unacceptable thing. But the moment you and I begin to be really keenly aware of our guilt. The moment our consciences are awakened, the moment we begin to be seriously worried about the fact, not that we may be more respectable than some other people, but that we we know in ourselves that we've messed up and that it's our fault, then the cross of Christ becomes good news. God so loved the world, this world that had raised the black flag, God so Loved In the heart of God, there is this overflowing, intense love that he should give his one and only son a gift of unique cost and unique value so that those who believe in him may not perish. And this is wonderful news. Someone was telling me just yesterday of a conversation with an older person And this older person has a real interest in Christianity, but has never, I think, really understood the gospel. 
And the older person was saying, I'm just not sure that I'm good enough. And that's a healthy thing to say, isn't it? I'm just not sure that I'm good enough. It's a, it's an honest awareness of my own failures in life and of this old person's failures in life. And my friend was reading to them these two verses. And as she read, not to condemn the world, but to save that the world might be saved through him. Not to condemn. This dear older person said, that's good. And that is good when you and I begin to feel our guilt. That he is, Jesus is the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. And that to believe in him... And the, the Old Testament picture of this bronze serpent really helps us to get a, a, an idea of what to believe in him means. It's the very opposite of every religion. Some years ago, in the 19th century, there was a, a minister in a church in Cornwall. His name was the Reverend W. Haslam. And he had above his mantelpiece a little colored, it was taken from a medieval um, manuscript, a picture of the episode in the wilderness of Moses raising up the bronze serpent uh, in, in, in the wilderness. And in the um, picture, there was one, there were four victims depicted. One of the victims was kneeling in front of the bronze serpent, but looking at Moses as if Moses were a priest and confessing to Moses and hoping to find healing in him. Then there was a second victim lying on his back as if he were perfectly safe. Then there was a third victim, a sad-faced man doing a work of mercy, going around helping a fellow sufferer, not realizing that he himself was involved in the same danger. And then there was a fourth victim, a valiant man doing battle with the serpents, who were rising against him in unabating ferocity. And Haslam, this Christian minister, comments, I observed that none of these men was looking at the bronze serpent as they were commanded to do. And religion in its different forms says to us, or philosophy in its different forms says to us, look at Moses as a a priest. Look at some human intermediary who's going to, to get you right with God. Lie on your back and relax because everything will be fine. That's probably the most common one today. Do works of mercy, try and help other people. Or fight the, 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 the evil inside and darkness inside yourself and see if you can defeat it. In its different forms, religion and philosophy says all of those things. So the Dalai Lama some years ago said, we must take direct responsibility for our own spiritual lives and rely upon nobody and nothing. If another being were able to save us, surely he would have done, done so already. It's time, therefore, that we help ourselves. That's religion, isn't it? We help ourselves. Or a quote from Freemasonry. By square conduct, level steps, and upright intentions, we hope to ascend to those immortal mansions whence all goodness emanates. We're going to climb up. We're going to work hard. We're going to be moral. We're going to be religious. And we're going to get there. And the Bible says, no, you must look, you must believe, you must trust. You must look at the one who has made sin for you, God's one and only Son, and trust in him. And that is the holy love of God revealed there. But it's very urgent. 
Now here's the thing, verse 18. John says something which is deeply politically incorrect in verse 18. So verse 18, just look at it. Whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned. That's, that's okay. Whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned. I'm really pleased that your Christianity helps you to raise your self-esteem, helps you not to be too hard on yourself, helps you not to feel condemned. I'm really pleased that it does that. No, that's not what John's saying. Read on, verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe, whoever does not look to Jesus, lifted up on the cross, whoever doesn't believe, stands condemned already, because he's not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. I'm guessing that this is probably the deepest and most fundamental objection to Christian faith in our society today. Don't you think? People struggle about suffering and a God of love, and there are wise and Christian things to be said about that. People don't like Christian standards of sexual morality, and there are wise and Christian things to say about that. But it seems to me that the the most fundamental objection is this. Christianity says, I must believe in Jesus. If I believe in Jesus, I'm not condemned. If I don't believe in Jesus, I stand condemned already. And people say that is utterly unacceptable. Somebody said to me just recently, I cannot accept that. It's it's ugly, it's unacceptable, it's narrow, it's bigoted. How can you possibly say that? But here's the logic. If the cross of Jesus is the revelation of the holy love of God, if on the cross of Jesus God gave up his only Son to become sin for sinners and to die in our place and to pay the penalty for our sin, then there's only two alternatives. Either he pays for my sin and I look to him and trust in him and follow him and bow the knee to him and believe in him, or I must bear my own sin. It's quite simple and logical. And that means you take all those crowds at the Trooping of the Colour yesterday. The crowds, the soldiers, the bandsmen, the royal family, everybody who was there yesterday, each one of them either believes in Jesus, looks to the one who's been made sin for sinners, either they believe in Jesus or they stand condemned already. That is to say, they're like if, if a murderer commits a murderer and a murderer and escapes, they are condemned already. They just—it's a kind of stay of execution until they're caught and brought to justice. That's what it is not to trust in Jesus. It's to be carrying around with me the burden and the guilt of my own sin, to be condemned, and therefore it's a really urgent thing if these things are true. Friends, if there's someone here and you're not as yet a Christian, it may be you're saying to yourself, I need to find out more about Christianity. Well, that would be good. But I want to say to you, you don't need to find out any more about Christianity. I want to say to you that that you can now, today, even if you understand very little about Christianity, you can in your heart turn And just begin that trusting in Jesus. 
Don't worry if there's a whole bundle of stuff you don't understand. Hey, there's a whole bundle of stuff we don't understand. There's a whole bundle of stuff I don't understand. I carry around with me a whole bundle of questions and things I don't understand. If you wait till you understand anything, you're never going to jump in. But it's really urgent. Either you're carrying your own sin, either I'm carrying my own sin, or I let Jesus carry it for me. So it's really, really urgent. And it's a wonderful thing when somebody does that. I was reading just yesterday of Thomas Bilney, who was a, a wonderful, um, wonderful 16th century uh, Englishman. He lived in Cambridge. He was one of the early reformers, really, caught up in the English Reformation. And he had tried, his conscience was very scrupulous. He knew that he was guilty before God. He wasn't the man just lying on his back thinking he was fine. He was fighting sin. He knew that it mattered. He knew he was guilty. And for years he did that with penitential activities, like Martin Luther, before he came to an assured faith in Christ. And Bill had been fighting and fighting and fighting. And yet it's written that in the moment he first trusted that Jesus freely offered full forgiveness to sinners like himself, he experienced a perceptible inner change. Immediately, he said, I felt a marvelous comfort and quietness in so much that my bruised bones leapt for joy. It's a wonderful thing to discover that and to look and to trust in Jesus. But the last thing that John gives us, and it's the remainder of the passage, is he demonstrates to us that God's judgment is absolutely just. Look at verse 19. Here is the verdict or the judgment or the process of judgment. This is what's happening in the world. Light has come into the world. And he's speaking of Jesus, the man who lived the perfect life, the one and only Son of God. Light has come into the world. But people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Human beings by nature, you and I by nature, are like a, an insect who you switch the light on and it scurries away under the skirting boards, out of the way. That's what we're like when the light is turned on. Verse 20, everyone who does evil hates the light, won't come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. That's the thing, isn't it? If I'm committing a burglary in the dark one night, the last thing I want is someone to come and switch the lights on. If I'm having an affair, the last thing I want is for it to come out into the open and be revealed. If I'm fiddling my work expenses, the last thing I want is for the whole thing to be to be put up on the on the on the on the the, the board at the front and come out into the open. If I gossiped unkindly, I, I spread some unkind rumor about someone. The last thing I want is to find that someone recorded my words and they're up there on Facebook. I hate the light. I want to stay in a sort of shadow world of pretending to be good. If I secretly watch things I shouldn't have watched, the last thing I want is for it all to come out into the open. If I've cherished resentful thoughts against somebody, wished them ill, been secretly pleased when something bad happened to them, the last thing I want is for those thoughts to be brought right out into the open and into the light. If I've been dreaming selfishly of success or fame or riches for myself, the last thing I want is for those dreams to be projected on a screen. I hate the light. 
I want to live in a shadow world of pretending to be good, of self-righteousness. That's human beings by nature. The light came into the world. Why was it that when a perfect man came into the world, we killed him? Because we hate dark, we, we love darkness rather than light. No human being is going to be condemned for the arbitrary reason that they happen not to believe in Jesus. See, that's the objection, isn't it? It's so arbitrary. Why should I have to believe in Jesus? I just don't, says somebody. Nobody's going to be condemned for that. No, the refusal to believe in Jesus, the refusal to bow the knee to Jesus, the refusal honestly to seek the truth of Jesus, the turning away there is the demonstration and the proof that at heart I'm too proud to come into the light. I'm too proud because I don't want my real sinfulness and the ugliness of my heart to come out into the open. But unless it comes out into the open, it can't be forgiven. Friend, if you're not a Christian, those of us who are Christians, we don't claim that we're better than those who aren't. We too harbor in our hearts, I'm sorry to say, malice and lust and envy and greed and all sorts of ugly things, as you do. But the difference is this. The world is not divided into good people and bad people. The world is divided into bad people who have come into the light. As verse 21 says, coming into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what we've done uh, has been done through God or in the sight of God. To come into the open, to be forgiven, to be changed. Bad people who've been humbled and bad people too proud to be humbled. And when the judgment comes, it will be perfectly just. I don't know about you, but the prospect that at the end of time, every ugly thing in my deeds, my words, and my thoughts should come into the light and be seen by all is a terrifying prospect. That makes me shiver. That is a horrible thought that that might happen. And it will happen unless you and I trust in Jesus. Unless we look to the one who's been made sin for us. Unless we look to God's one and only Son. Unless we begin to learn and rejoice that God so loved the world. He so loved people like us. He so loved people who have raised the black flag and decided to live in God's world our own way, making our own decisions. He so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that those who believe in him, all who believe in him, no matter how ugly our hearts all who believe in him, all who will look to him lifted up on the cross, may not perish, but have eternal life, the life of the age to come. It is a wonderful thing to be a Christian, but it is an urgent thing. It is a really urgent thing. It's not surprising that the world outside 
hates Christianity. It's not surprising that when the, we say these things, the world outside says that is unacceptable, that is outrageous, I cannot accept that. Because the world outside lives in a shadow world of pretense and pretending to be good. It is a wonderful thing to come into the light. It's a wonderful thing to have our sins forgiven. It is a wonderful thing to believe, and knowing that believing in Jesus, we will not perish, but we will have the life of the age to come. Let's be quiet uh, for a moment. Almighty God, we thank you for such wonderful love. We thank you, Father, for your love that sent Jesus. We thank you, Jesus, for the love that took you to the cross. And we thank you that by the Holy Spirit that love is poured into our hearts. And we pray that each one of us here might know that love and forgiveness and might have a real vital living trust in Jesus. We ask it in his name. Amen.